Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright, and it's my pleasure to welcome you. Maybe you're here for the first time, you've been coming for a few weeks. Um, we hope that you will feel comfortable among us, and um, we're glad you're here. So this summer, we are exploring how God challenges us and encourages us through the wisdom we get in relationships. So we're going to have a particular focus on how God shows up in the intentionality of relationships that we sometimes describe as mentoring relationships. So this morning, we're going to start in the Old Testament by looking at an example of an encounter between two individuals that leads to God's fruitfulness showing up in their lives. I think we recognize that, that all of us need more wisdom. We need it for living our lives in healthier ways, in the harmony of God's purposes. And so we're trying to do that as a congregation here at Courtright. We're trying to develop a culture of mentoring where we realize deliberately that we have, each of us received something and that we have something to give so that our encounters with one another are not simply arbitrary, random, the conversation bouncing around, but where there is a bedrock of intentionality about that. And we take our inspiration in this from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. It's kind of our theme verse for the summer. Where we read... The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And some translations, instead of saying, using that verb, to entrust, say to pass on. So we've, we've all received something. We've received Christian faith. We've received wisdom from mentors. We've gotten examples of how to handle conflict, which never ceases to challenge us, right? We've received excellent teaching. Those are just some examples. One of my mentors is a guy named John Bowen, who worked for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in campus ministry for many years and who ran the leadership and training program at Pioneer Camp. I remember John said something to me probably 20 years ago, he told me that one of the most valuable lessons he had learned for his own growth in faith came shortly after he became a believer at the age of 19 as an undergraduate. Someone advised him to immediately get involved in a mentoring relationship with another believer. And, and he thought to himself, well, I'm, I'm new to this. I don't really understand it yet. I, shouldn't I wait until I feel like I'm ready? And the response was no, because if you do that, you could wait forever. Because the word disciple doesn't mean someone who's figured out the faith. It means someone who is still learning. And all of us are disciples like that. And so John took up that challenge. He met with someone. I don't know how formal it was. Uh, maybe it was more informal, organic, the mentoring that took place. But he told me that the Holy Spirit really met him in that, and his faith grew quickly. Now, if you're turned in on yourself as a Christian, 
if you're somehow keeping it to yourself, if you're not involved in this passing on what you have received, then you're simply not going to grow as you otherwise would. And so that's what we're pursuing this summer in our series. We have a number of guest speakers coming in. We're excited about that. So let's pray before we open up our Bibles. Holy Spirit, we know that, that ultimately you are our mentor. You are our guide. So come alongside us, we ask this morning. We are like the disciples we read about in the Gospels. Far from perfect, not having figured it out. Not at all. But we would say to you, this morning, where else can we go? Because you alone have words of eternal life. And you've convinced some of us, most of us of that. And so we wait on you, Holy Spirit, to pour your goodness into us through the ministry of the word this morning. Amen. So we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 3. And we'll be reading the whole chapter. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time, the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family, from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. 
Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage is all about listening. And I want us to reflect this morning on three moments in the text, in the action of what we've seen happening here. First of all, the moment of silence and contemplation right before God first speaks to Samuel. Secondly, in the exchange of conversation between Samuel and Eli. And third and finally, in Samuel's act of proclamation. So contemplation, conversation, proclamation. The opening line of this chapter introduces its three main characters. Right away, we meet Samuel, Eli, and the Lord. And we also learn that it was a dark time in the history of Israel. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, it says. Israel had been unfaithful to God's covenant. They had worshipped other gods. And if you flip, flip back a few pages in your Bible, you'll see that the last line of the previous book, the book of Judges, says, At that time, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And so it's into this atmosphere of darkness and confusion that young Samuel is called. Now, Eli was the second last judge of Israel. Judges were not like our judges. They were military leaders. Sometimes it's translated as chieftain. They were leaders who arose in response to a crisis that the nation was facing. So Eli wasn't only a judge, he was also the high priest. And it was his job to lead Israel spiritually as well, to guide God's people back to faithful worship of Yahweh, the one true God. But in verse 2, it says that Eli's eyesight was so weak that he could barely see. So this is a physical reality. He was getting to the point of being blind in his old age, but it was more than that too. Whenever the author shares a detail with us like that, you have to wonder if there's something deeper. And what we're learning here is that Eli's spiritual vision was failing him also. The previous chapter describes how the sons of Eli had lost their way. They had abused their power. They were stealing from the people. They were taking advantage of women in the tabernacle itself. They were doing whatever they wanted. And yet, 
It goes on here to tell us that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, there was a literal lamp in the temple, but that's also a symbol of hope. And it's at that point that we first meet this teenage boy, Samuel, as he's lying in the temple close to the things of God, not far from the Ark of the Covenant, which Jewish people believed was the presence of Yahweh. So he's in a good position here. He's well-situated. And we read also that Eli was lying down and Samuel was lying down. And this, this kind of a quiet descends on the story. The flow pauses. At least that's how I read it. And there is silence. And it's in the quietness of that moment that the Lord calls Samuel. This is where the Christian life begins. It begins in silence and contemplation. We are still, we admit that we have nothing to say, nothing to offer. And God fills the emptiness of our lives with his word. He calls us. But are we prepared to listen? Well, I think the example of Samuel can guide us as we try to become better listeners. Ultimately, we want to listen to God through his word. And we can adopt certain practices in the pursuit of that. So when the word of the Lord becomes rare to us, as it was for Israel in that time, when the word of the Lord becomes rare to us as individuals, maybe you're in that situation right now. It has been a while since God broke through the routine, the predictability, the boring reality of the grind of your life. Well, when we're in that position, like Samuel we can make certain decisions. We can choose to stay close to the lamp of God. And we can stick close to the ark of God. We can pursue his presence. One of the most important ways we do that is by simply showing up, by gathering with other Christians, as we're doing right now, both those of you who are here in the room and those of you who are online. And we do that whether we're in the mood for it or not whether we feel like it or not. That's what a discipline is. And we long for the day, we look forward for the day when we can all gather once again, even as COVID cases are on the rise once more. But we know that it happens in person best of all. And so corporate worship, you can think of it as being like a moment of silent reflection in the busyness of our week. But... It's not really silent. I'm speaking. And if I stopped, you might start to freak out a little on the inside. If I stopped for too long, am I wrong? Silence makes us nervous. I don't know why you're nervous. You're all looking at me. <laughs> but it does. The truth is that this is not 
the silence, the only silence we need. True silence only comes when we are alone. Thank you. Thank you. I love how John Calvin puts this. He writes, We know that during our interactions with others in the daytime, our thoughts are distracted, and we often judge rashly as we are deceived by external appearances. Think on those words for a moment. Isn't that true? When we're in a crowd of people, we see only what's external. We don't have the capacity to step back to see what may be below the surface, what's true, and not merely our perception of something in passing. We're distracted by so many things. He continues, Whereas in solitude, we can give to any subject a closer attention. Above all, we are prone to deceive one another with empty applause until we turn inward and commune alone with our heart. Now, the deception of empty applause is the premise for all social media, let me say. We seek out the approval of others. We put forward an image of ourselves. And we crave the likes. We crave the attention. We crave the connection, but is it real? We worry about what people think about us constantly. Some of us more than others. We're deceived by seeking the approval of others. And so it's only in silence and solitude that we can really pay closer attention to our hearts, to our inner life. Still, we want to avoid silence. In May, I walked the Camino of Santiago, which translated from the Spanish is the Way of St. James. So since the 11th century, Christian pilgrims from all over the world have walked across the north of Spain to the city of Santiago, named after the Apostle James, and where he is said to have been buried. So a pilgrim is someone who travels with a spiritual purpose. So I walked alone for eight hours a day. I'd never experienced anything like that before. It forced me into a silence and a solitude that I had not encountered in my life before. Walking is the slowest way to travel. I guess you could crawl, that would be slower. But for most of us, as adults, walking is the least efficient means of getting somewhere, right? We are addicted to speed. We want everything fast and efficient. Some of you are really into cars. You like to drive them quickly. Your pastor might have a predilection in that regard. Hopefully, you don't see me on the Hanlon breaking too many laws. What I found on my way walking on the Camino was that my life became radically simplified. And after three or four hours after the start of the day, walking in silence, my mind and my heart 
stopped circling back to my preoccupations. It helped me pay attention to God and to the world around me. That's the meaning of this word contemplation. It's not a word we come across too often. To contemplate is to pay attention, to observe, to notice. But you don't have to go to Spain for that. And in fact, in some ways, it's a problem if you do, because the mountaintop experience can be isolated and never find its way into our day-to-day lives. Solitude and silence are disciplines that can help you each and every day. So solitude, I, was defi- I would define as the intentional stepping away from social engagement. And silence, I would say, is the absence of all human-created stimuli. So you can be silent walking in the woods, but you can't be silent with a screen in a group of people. Now, you can embrace solitude and silence in simple, everyday ways. Many of you do this already. You can get up 15 minutes before you normally would have or before the other people you live with get up. Or if you're a night owl, you can stay up later. You can find a place that is set apart in your home or maybe a bench in the park and seek solitude in that way. You can turn off your phone, or better yet, you can spend the first hour of each day and the last hour without a screen or internet connection, or whatever that time is. But when we reach for our phone, when we reach for that connectivity as the very first thing in the morning, we don't invite the peace that comes from taking a breath first. And this is not particularly Christian wisdom. This is wisdom that we hear all the time. We know that these screens keep us awake. They interrupt our rest. But God does step into that kind of silence and solitude. God shows up and God gives us his word. Because as we turn inward, as we take the time and as we develop uh, this discipline of prayer and confession, silence itself isn't the goal. This isn't the kind of meditation that is featured in Eastern religions or in New Age spirituality that delights in emptiness for its own sake. No, as Christians, we're always waiting to be filled up by God's Word. And so we turn to that lamp, we turn to Scripture, And we let the words inform us. We let the words enliven us, illuminate us. We let them become for us a new vocabulary, a way of understanding who we are. And so when we struggle to pray, we can turn to the book of Psalms, for example, And God gives us words of lament, words of praise, words of thanksgiving and intercession. When we lose sight of Jesus, we can open the Gospels and we put ourselves in those stories. And we believe that as we study the Bible, as we dig for its meaning, alone in this silence and solitude, as well as in groups, 
that is the main way that God speaks to us. In our reading today, God breaks through the silence and speaks to Samuel. But Samuel doesn't get it, so he goes off right away to find Eli. It's a good response. Often we struggle to understand what's going, in our, going on in our lives, especially when we're facing adversity, and we all need help in discerning what it means. We all need wisdom to know what to do next. And so God speaks to us through those conversations that we have with people in our lives. They can help us to see what's truly happening beneath the outward appearance of our lives. God speaks to us on a daily basis through the advice of a friend, the encouragement of a family member, or the insight of an elder. And these are the people who will take the time and come close to us to help us get practical with Christian faith. They will model it. They will walk with us through the challenges we face. And Christian maturity comes through those kinds of relationships. It comes with responsibilities too. And so we're called to take up the challenge of playing Eli to others. The natural tendency we have is to say nothing when people come to us with their problems. Nothing challenging, at least. We want to roll over and go back to sleep. But we can choose the path of contemplation. And we can share that with others by paying attention to how God's showing up in their lives. And we can ask them to do the same for us. So just think with me for a moment of a mentor in your life. I told you a story about one of my mentors, John Bowen. Who is it that comes to mind for you? Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone here at Courtright. Is there someone that, that you can think of who you could say without any doubt, if not for that person, I would not be here today? And by that I mean at the place in your Christian journey that you're at. At Courtright, we want everyone to receive and give mentoring. We have a mentoring program for that purpose, and you can talk to Allison about that if you want to learn more about it. There's a season for everything. But I invite you to consider that it's always our calling to pass on wisdom to others and to receive it. Sometimes that happens more informally, other times more formally. But we won't get to the end of this story from the silence and contemplation through the conversation to what comes at the end, the fruitfulness, without learning from Eli and Samuel's interaction. So both of them rise to the challenge. Samuel is bold and persistent in going to Eli when it says that he was afraid. He must have been terrified that Eli would get angry with him or think he was crazy. At the very beginning of the chapter, it says that Samuel was under Eli. Eli had so much power over him. And he's faithful to the message that God gave him to convey to his master, which was a hard message, a word of rebuke and judgment. And for his part, Eli gives great advice to young Samuel. We see this in verses 8 and 9. 
Samuel goes back a third time. How many of us would have stopped at a second time, if not before? The courage of Samuel is remarkable. And then Eli notices what's really going on. He's humble. He accepts what Samuel is saying. He doesn't dismiss him. He tells him to go back and he passes on wisdom to him. If you were woken up in the middle of the night by someone who was your subordinate and then in the next moment, the next morning, were rebuked in the name of God, how would you respond? Most of us, I think, would become defensive, right? We, it's like we wear armor in these situations. We've been hurt, we don't want to be hurt again, and we use whatever is available to us to keep criticism and challenge at a distance. In verse 17... Eli shows us the humility that I think is astonishing and that leads to renewal in his life, but also in the life of all God's people. He says, don't hide from me whatever it was that God said to you. And then at the end, he is the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. The Holy Spirit has broken through Eli's armor. Samuel and Eli listened to each other, which helped them listen to God. I was working on a letter to the congregation, to all of you this week, and I asked for help from another elder on session. And I got some feedback on my letter. It was specific feedback. It was challenging. Basically, the first version of the letter I wrote was not very good, in spite of my feeling like it was fine and I was finished the job. And then I got this input that went into greater detail than I expected, and it demanded that I rethink the letter completely. And I began to convince myself I didn't have time to do that, and and I could have ignored the advice, but I took a deep breath and I stepped away from that task, and in the end I adopted most of the feedback I'd received. And a day later I realized just how important it was for me to have been challenged on what I originally came up with. Are you open to being challenged by feedback you might normally be tempted to ignore or dismiss? Maybe you're facing a situation right now in your life where you have a relationship with someone where you're experiencing conflict, where you're feeling criticized or attacked. How can you accept the good in that without accepting the bad? My advice is that when we go through these challenges, we can ask God not just to remove that pain from our lives, but also ask him what he has for us in the middle of it. And it's often a word that leads to renewal. Samuel's proclamation was more than mere feedback on some task Eli had been assigned. It was a word of judgment against Eli and his family. It's a reminder to us that unfaithfulness has consequences. And we sang earlier about God's holiness. God does not tolerate sin, our rebellion against him. 
But it's also a reminder of God's goodness, that he wants, most of all, to put things right in the world. He longs for justice and righteousness. How is God calling you today to proclaim his word and to live it out? How is he calling, that, calling you to do that with a specific individual in your life? With Samuel, God was doing something new in the history of his people. Right here in 1 Samuel 3, we're watching a leadership translation that would change the world. Without it, Israel wouldn't have moved forward into the better future that God had for them. Here in this story, we see that God's renewing word comes from unexpected sources. Samuel's mother, Hannah, and then Samuel himself were unlikely heroes. Hannah gave up her son for a life of service in the temple. She was uneducated and without authority in that culture because she was a woman. And yet God made her instrumental. And then from Samuel, an even more central role, from a teenager, from one who did not even yet know the Lord fully, Eli gets this renewing word which sets the stage for the anointing of Israel's greatest king, King David. And through David's family line, all the way to Jesus of Nazareth being born in Bethlehem. Are you in a place right now where you're doubting that God has a good plan for you? Where you're doubting that God can really use you? He is only waiting for you to respond to whatever circumstances you face in your life today by saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So I'd encourage you to try that this week as you open your Bible, just simply to pray that prayer. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The story of Samuel and Eli gives us a glimpse of this new thing that God was doing then and is still doing. Samuel's proclamation arose from his faithfulness. That's what it means when it says that the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. He had integrity. What he said he was going to do, he did. And God demands that. And he will help us like he helped Samuel. He will guide us into his purpose, into the plan he has for us. And that's the best place for us to be. But as I say that, it's important for us to hear that our hope does not lie in our best attempt to live with integrity, to live out God's will. Because if it did, we would have no hope. Ultimately, our hope is in God's grace alone, because none of us can live in a way that pleases God. In verse 14, it says that the guilt of Eli's house would never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. But in the new covenant, through Jesus Christ, God offers us forgiveness, and so there's nothing that cannot be atoned, that has not been atoned for in that way. While we were still sinners, when our words were falling to the ground, when our guilt was clear, though we would often deny it, God sent his son to be the atonement that we desperately needed and to save us from our rebellion 
and self-centeredness. So God is calling you, God is calling every one of us together in his son Jesus. He's inviting all of us in, all of us in. He has this big picture in mind. His love is showering down on us from the heavens, on the whole world. And that's his call. It's huge to every one of us to be part of what he's doing in the world, of his coming kingdom of goodness and beauty and truth and justice. And it starts right away in the small things. It starts in the silence of your contemplation. It starts in every conversation you have. That includes right after the service. That includes in the car on the way home. And especially in those mentoring relationships. And also in the life that we lead. Not just Sunday mornings. Our whole lives as embodied worship to God. Through Jesus Christ and by his grace, we can say, like Samuel did, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So let's, let's say that now. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we thank you that you are not silent. We thank you that you are always speaking and you speak words of eternal life. You speak words of love. You speak words of challenge. Help us to come to you, to make room for you, to be silent before you, and then lead us to those you have in mind for us, to encourage to challenge, to serve. We want to be part of your goodness, your restoration, your healing in the world. So guide us in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.